I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Congressman Andy Kim of New Jersey likes to say that he tries to practice the politics of humility. We saw that in action in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection when a photo of him cleaning debris alone from the rotunda went viral. Kim's humility is painfully present in the conversation we had about anti-Asian hate in the wake of the Atlanta spa shootings and that it has flared since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. We talked about the impact of all of this on his five-year-old son and on himself. I didn't know what to tell my kid and I didn't know what to say to him. I felt sadness because I knew that that was not the last time he would hear these things. Listen to the rest of this powerful conversation right now. Congressman Kim, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me here today. Well, before we get into the big topic of, of why we're here and, and uh, talking, let's talk about your district. Because you and I have spoken you know, offline before. Uh, about your district, which is of endless fascination for me, New Jersey's third congressional district, right? That's right. That's right. And the demographic makeup is about 80% white and just under 4% Asian American. That's about right. That's right. And you were elected in 2018 to your first term, beating out um, the incumbent Republican And to add on top of it, you are the first Democrat of Korean descent in the Congress, the second overall. How did a Korean American in an overwhelmingly white district with a Republican incumbent win election in 2018? Uh, I'm I'm still I'm still trying to learn all the lessons. I'll be honest, Uh, I was. You know, I, I, when I started running for Congress in 2018, you know, I, I remember my wife asked me, you know, what's the chance that you can win? And I said, I don't know, maybe 15 percent. And I think I was being a little generous with myself at that time, too. Um, my opponent won by my previous opponent. He you're right. He was an incumbent who won by 20 points in 2016. And what we ended up pulling off was a 21 point flip in two years uh, to, to win this seat. Um, and and now. Um, and then even with that, uh, the, the, the last time a Democrat was reelected to this seat, so one, two in a row, was before the Civil War. Um, so, so for us to pull this off was, was a lot. But look, for me, um, this is my home. And I, I grew up to kindergarten here. My oldest son's going to kindergarten here now. Um, this, is, this is where I love. Um, this is where I had my first job. Hit my first home run, you know, got my, uh, you know, my first experiences so many ways. And I, that's what I just try to convey to people here, that, that I'm a public school kid from this district that, that got great opportunities because of this district, went on to become a Rhodes Scholar, United States diplomat, running for Congress. I think that that's why people appreciated what I'm trying to bring here, that honestly, I'm not a knife fighting partisan politician. I was a career public servant. I often say, you know, whether you voted for me or not, you're my boss. And I talk about how I worked under both Republicans and Democrats. I think that that's what people here are looking for. They were looking for someone who's actually not a politician and someone who's trying to come at this from a sense of public service. And uh, I hope to be able to continue to convey to them that that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I mean, here's what's interesting. You talk about that 21 point flip 
um, in your district when you ran the first time, um, when you won election in 2018, you won by just two percentage points. Then you run for re-election in 2020. Um, oh, and I should point out that Donald Trump won the district uh, by six points in 2016. And you talked about it, the big, you know, how much you're in, the incumbent won. But then in 2020, when you ran for re-election, um, Donald Trump won the district, by, but only by 0.2%. But you won re-election by almost 8%. What does that tell you about your district and how they were, if anything, and how they reacted to the Trump presidency? Well, it says a lot, and I'm still trying to dissect and analyze it. But what I'll say is that it shows that, that people are paying attention to what I'm working on, that they're not just voting straight down the line. Uh, you're right. You know, President Biden and Senator Booker both lost my district this past election, and I was able to outperform them by about eight points. Uh, but but I also think it, it shows that 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 people are not just you know straight party voters uh, that that tens of thousands of people in this district voted for President Trump and voted for me uh, and now it's a question of of why and I've actually spoken to a number of people who voted for Trump and voted for me and part of it is about some of the issues that I focus in on uh, you know the the issues that I give attention to like issues with veterans and issues specific to seniors. Uh, issues about the opioid crisis that has hit so hard in my district. So that is part of it. But again, a, a lot of people tell me that what it comes down to is, is just um, is just the demeanor in some ways that they, they, they see in me um, somebody that they, while they may not agree with me on every issue, they, they know that I'm, I'm in this for the right reasons. Um, and I, I think that that's, that means a lot to me. Uh, I, I want them to see that I, I, I I'm genuine and earnest in my love of service and my love of this country. Uh, and that, you know, kind of just wanted to make sure that that's my North star. Uh, you know, I do these town halls every month. I've done like over 33 town halls, you know, other things like that. People like the engagement. They like that. They see me working hard and hustling uh, on their behalf of them and their families. So, you know, that that's, those are some of the takeaways that I, that I get from, you know, from the election. And so, um, and that is a, a, a nice, uh, dare say, rosy picture of your, of your district. However, um, I was watching you on with uh, my MSNBC colleague, uh, Nicole Wallace. And, um, and you were on talking about the tragedy in Atlanta, um, the, the mass shooting where eight people have died, six of whom are Asian, Asian American, um, and sort of what that says about the tenor and tone of the conversation in this country. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, how much of a role did Donald Trump play in fostering an atmosphere of menace, dare say, violence against Asian Americans by using racist language to talk about the coronavirus pandemic? I, the way I sort of liken this is that, that the, the former president certainly played uh, a big role in, in the situation that we're in. I liken it to pouring gasoline on a fire, uh, you know, taking a, a situation and igniting it even further, um, fanning those flames. But 
I say that by also recognizing that those flames existed before Donald Trump. It existed before the coronavirus. It's going to exist after Donald Trump and after the coronavirus. Uh, I've experienced this over the course of my whole life. Ever since I can remember events in my life, I remember some form of discrimination, some form of recognizing that other people see me as an other and that, that, that I never felt in my life fully comfortable that people see me as who I am. I, I would just to go, even go to what you just talked about before about, about um, running for Congress. I remember when I was running for Congress, I talked to, to political experts in the Democratic Party, in my party. And they said, look, you seem like a nice guy and all, but there's just no chance you can win this seat because it's 80, over 80% 80 white and less than three or 4% Asian American. And they told me, why don't you think about going up to North Jersey where there's a lot more people that look like you. And that's how people in the Democratic Party talked to me when I was thinking about running for Congress. It hurt, you know, and I'm also someone that was a, you know, a diplomat at the State Department before that, um, you know, worked in Afghanistan and Iraq and then found a letter on my desk one day at the State Department telling me I'm banned from working on anything related to Korea. I, I never even applied to work on anything in Korea and the United States State Department proactively deemed me as unfit to work on an issue, even though I had top secret security clearance born in the United States, but they told me in that letter, basically how it felt, is that they don't trust my loyalty and that they, they, they worry about that because of my last name. So I felt this all my life. I know many others have. Yes, things are really bad right now. I'm not gonna discount that. And the pandemic makes things worse. Uh, the fear is out there and the violence is, is, is something we need to address. But when we're experiencing a time of heightened tensions with China, for instance, that are probably going to continue on for decades to come, what is that actually going to do about xenophobia in America? You know, after I see what happened to the Arab American community after September 11th, I do worry that what we are seeing is just the beginning, not the climax, but just the beginning of a new age of xenophobia geared towards the API community in this country. I pray that it doesn't happen, but I see all the elements there setting the stage for that. And I fear for my three-year-old and my five-year-old baby boys and what kind of world they're going to grow up in. You know, when you were talking about your district early on and you said, you know, you were born and raised there, you hit your first home run there. And when you said you hit your first home run in, in your district, I couldn't help but wonder and, you know, was gearing up for this very question. When you were in school, what, and kids are cruel. <laughs> we know kids are cruel. Did you face um, any kind of, not discrimination, but just sort of outright open racism zeroing in or the kids focusing in on you looking like the other as opposed to being a fellow American? Yes, uh, it's very simple. Yes, uh, you know, whether at, at all stages of my uh, life, I've, I've had those types of experiences. And I think what has hit that home for me even more is that I, I told you I have a five-year-old boy in, in kindergarten and he, uh, he came home 
a couple day, a couple weeks ago, and just you know said something happened, and he was telling me how like another kid at school, an older kid, um, just over and over and over again over the course of the day, just kept kept calling him China boy, China boy, or Chinese boy. Um, and my son was just really confused. He's like, I kept telling him I'm a New Jersey boy. I, I don't know why he thinks I'm from China. And my son kind of like laughed it off. And I realized that he didn't understand what was happening there. He didn't understand that 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 these are elements that get at this of, of people not seeing us as American first uh, and, and seeing us through the lens of the other. Um, and I remember, I remember just, I didn't know what to tell my kid mm. and I didn't know what to say to him. And I, I felt, I felt sadness because I felt like I knew that that was not the last time he would hear these things. I know that things are actually going to be worse. Um, you know, he's going to hear things far worse than what he heard. And I'm sad that he's going to have those experiences. And I wish as a dad, I could prevent him from having that. So those are, these are tough. You know, as you're, as you're speaking, of course, you know, being a black kid um, growing up in New Jersey, um, you know, in Hazlitt, New Jersey. So I think that's one over from your, your district um, in Monmouth County. Um, and, you know, having my mother have the talk with me, um, preparing me for the world that I was, you know, just slowly waking up to about seeing as be, being seen as the other from a, a different vantage point, you know, being prepared for the N word, being prepared for teachers trying to push me into classes that were vocational in nature as opposed to. Um, more rigorous classes. And, and I noticed that um, you just said you didn't know what to say to your, your five-year-old. Have you thought of a version of the talk that you would give your son when he's a little older? And if so, what would you tell him? Yeah. I've, I've, I've thought about this um, recently because I never got any version of, of the talk from my parents. Um, I don't know if that actually kind of exists in the Asian American community in the way that it, it does for the black community. And uh, my parents in many ways were, you know, they're, they're hardworking my, my mom's a nurse, my dad a scientist, but in, in many ways, they, they were very conflict avoidance, you know, uh, avoiders. They, they, they um, very much thought that just, you know, hard work and keeping, you know, keeping your, your nose to the grindstone and kind of minding your business is going to get you through. Um, and uh, so I, I never really had that talk. And I, and I never really understood how to contemplate being Asian American. In fact, I went through different phases. When I was younger, there were times where I just kind of denied that I was Asian American, just didn't think, tried not to think about it. And, and, and I would be very uh, assertive with people when they call me Asian American or talk about Korean American or things like that. 
And I'm like, no, I'm American first, you know, and like, uh, and, um, and I'll be honest, you know, when I, when I was running for, con when I first started to run for Congress, I didn't actually even conceptualize the fact that there were zero Korean Americans in Congress at that time. I didn't necessarily think about those lenses immediately. But I realized that, you know, I had some privilege to be able to do that, that I, I understand some of that space. And I think for my kid and my, my two boys, yes, I, I think it's important to have that sense of it um, and, and try to find a way to communicate what I feel and, um, and how we've experienced it. My wife and I have had a lot of conversations of late, just of the differences that of, of the experience that I've had and that she has as, a, as an Asian woman too. You know, and I think that those nuances are really important. Well, what has, what has your wife said about her experiences? Yeah, you know, I think um, this week in particular um, was a week where I, I've actually spent a lot of time just listening to my wife and listening to some of my friends uh, and other Asian women that I, Asian American women that I know, because I, I, I grasp some of this, of what's happened. There's, there's an element of this that I, I grasp, but I think there's, there's this real feeling right now, especially how the, the, the murders were, have been talked about as, as it being, you know, the killer having a sexual addiction and, you know, this being about that, it's, it's about that. It's not about race, but for my wife, that, that kind of approach really made her feel like she was not being heard or seen. And, and, you know, you have an example of a killer who clearly fetishized Asian women and, and, as a result, it, it, the fact that he's, you know, at least the way that they frame it is that he wanted to get rid of his temptation as if, as if Asian women are, are just an object to, to be lusted after or have an addiction to as if it's a substance that it dehumanizes. Um, and um, I, th I think that that's something that I don't fully experience um, yeah, being a, an, an Asian man. So, you know, I think it's been very important for me and others to listen and to lift up those voices and make sure that, that people are being heard and seen during times of great invisibility. One of the hardest ones that I heard about was an Asian woman who told me, who had experienced of pretty, pretty horrible instances in her life. And I asked her, did you ever report these? And I've heard people say, oh, no, I haven't reported because I worry about retaliation and things like that. Those are no. But what she said to me is, no, I didn't because I didn't think anyone would care is how she framed it. And that just hit me hard because it just shows how isolated she felt and how lonely she felt. And if ever there's something we take away from this week, it's you know that engagement you know, whether from the top officials or down or just friends or neighbors, just try to make sure people don't feel so isolated, you know, that they don't feel so alone, such that they just think nobody will care if I say something about the hurt that I've experienced. That is, that is really, that is really tough to hear. And at the hearing that was held um, during the week, solely focused on the anti-Asian American violence, that's been happening in the country because what happened in, in Atlanta um, is not the first. Um, it is um, an, a big incident among many that have been happening um, with more national attention 
for more than a year now. At the hearing, you had one member of Congress who, on the one hand, repeated the racist language, and then on the other hand, tried to completely ignore and pivot and change the subject to to something else. That adds to the not only the invisibility, but also to the sense that well, who no one's no one cares. No one's going to care uh, about this, doesn't it? It does, and your the the phrase you use is the same one that I use, which is change the subject. And um, you know, thankfully, you know, my colleague Congresswoman Grace Meng, uh, just very emotionally, and I understand why I was emotional hearing her, but said this was about seeing and feeling the pain of the Asian American community. That's what this was about. And and this person is trying to hijack it. And, uh, you know, it's important for us to talk about as we are here, but I have to say that a lot of the the news that I did the other day after that hearing, it was all about this colleague of mine and what he said. And again, it was just, it was so frustrating because I'm like, why is it about him again? You know, why is it, you know, why is it about him and how he was able to hijack this, uh, this message that was so important when we should be focused on the victims? But no, look, it's important to talk about because this happens so often that, that people who don't want to confront the, the pains that people are going through just change the subject. And that's how, you know, I think that woman feels when she says no one cares, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, when she, you know, if she were watching that, I wonder what she thought about that hearing when she you know, sees people trying to express the fear and the anger that they have right now. And then someone in a pe- position of power just says, that's fine, but let me talk about these other things that are on my mind. Um, that just reinforces uh, that pain. You know, one thing you brought up, um, another thing you brought up with my colleague, um, Nicole Wallace, um, when she asked you if you felt safe uh, walking around. And you said something that I thought was, um, it sort of took me aback. I could understand this if you were in Washington, what I'm about to share. But in your own district, you said that you now travel with an armed escort when you're on official duties within your district um, and that you are concerned about your about your family and that family members um, have, have told you um, that people have said to them, you know, get away from me. I don't want to get coronavirus. Could you talk more about that? And how does that make you feel that even in your own district, where your job is to be with your constituents, be someone who is seen, I mean, not seen as, you are a leader in your, in your community, and yet things are so bad that you can't even walk around your own community without protection. Well, well look, um, what I want to say is, that, you know, I'm, I'm, a lot of what this is, we're just trying to take precautionary measures, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I appreciate, you know, I appreciate local law enforcement um, thinking about this, you know, when, when we live in a, in a world where we, we saw what happened to, you know, Gabby Giffords, um, we can never think uh, 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 
you know, we, we can never be too safe here. So um, I, I don't want it to sound like things are so bad that, you know, I, I can't go around uh, as a normal person. This okay. is when I'm on official business, when there are events that are known that I'll be there, things like that. But but the fact that that, that happens, the fact that, you know, it's the law enforcement that, that's actually making the decisions. They see my schedule, they decide, you know, when they need to be there or not. So it's not me saying they have to be there. Um, but the fact that like law enforcement who are experts in understanding this feel like this is, uh, something that they need to do. Um, it's certainly something that makes me think about, you know, just, uh, you know, all these different aspects. You know, I don't bring my children to, to many political events anymore. Um, you know, not just because of COVID, but just because, you know, there's always this element of like, I don't know what's going to happen. And that's scary. And it's this actually, you know, the, this actually preceded January 6th, but January 6th has, has certainly escalated, um, escalated concerns. Um, and, and just it's changed what I thought was possible um, and, and potential. And um, that's worrisome. I don't, I'm, I'm not somebody that l- wants to, you know, to sound alarms unnecessarily. I've worked in tough places before. I served in Afghanistan as a civilian advisor. I worked in, in uh, you know, I've been in Iraq before and, and other places. So, um, you know, I don't want to sound alarmist in any way, but, you know, I also just realized that, um, you know, we live in unpredictable times and we live in times where our imagination, unfortunately, sometimes falls short of reality in terms of, of what is actually possible. And I was gonna bring, bring up the fact that, you know, this enhanced um, protection um, has more to do with January 6th than um, with what we've been reading about in terms of Atlanta. But, um, you know, when this, pre-Atlanta, pre the mass shooting, but the conversation was already joined about the violence against Asian Americans in the country. And there were a spate of stories that to my mind seemed to be trying to drive a wedge between Asian Americans and African Americans, um, trying to basically pit us against, pit us against each other. Wondering your your reaction to that and what you would say to um, Asian Americans who would uh, point fingers and say because a lot of the the videos and things that we had seen some of the perpetrators of people um, pushing and punching um, Asian Americans appear to be uh, appear to be black. Um, what do you say to someone who's Asian American who um, just goes down that road of blaming Black people for the travails of what's happening to the Asian American community? Yeah, I, well, look, I, I, I say that that that's that that we need to be focused on on building a coalition and trying to to unify and unite and and think about how it is that we can all stand up against. Uh, you know, hatred in in any form, and and the, the way that uh, if we were to pick communities against each other, that would just be the the, the worst way to go about that. Um, you know, we we really shouldn't be uh, trying to condemn um, 
the the racism that that we feel directed without confronting you know our own with humility our own uh perceptions our own assumptions on our own ends you know we just we really need to make sure that we're uh working together hand in hand i think about you know so many of the you know the marches last summer in the after you know in the after the murder of george floyd what lifted my spirits in an otherwise just very difficult time was just seeing uh just the diversity um of people stepping up and and saying things and that's what the asian american community needs right now too is is seeing a lot of people stepping up and saying you know this this is unacceptable and that we we don't only care about the hate and the discrimination that targets people that look like us um you know so so that that's where i would try to say is that we need to really just make sure we don't go down some of those those directions um and, and instead just try to to make sure that we build the unity now you know that dovetails uh nicely with um a question i was going to ask you about an op-ed we had on the op-ed page um, by Alifair Burke, who's a no- novelist and a professor at Hofstra Law, um, Hofstra University, a professor of law at Hofstra University. Um, and basically, she was making the same point that, you know, we, meaning the Asian American community, needs to, like, who's going to march with us? We need, we need folks to, to march with us. And I want to read this this paragraph to you and get your reaction. She wrote, The quote-unquote model minority stereotype of Asian Americans that's used to argue that we are an exception to the gravitational force of American racism, good students, hard workers, non-threatening people of color, is constantly weaponized to simultaneously demonize Black and Latino communities and constrain Asian American activism. Under the prior administration, the Justice Department blatantly pitted Asian Americans against other people of color by suing elite universities in an attempt to ban admission policies that valued diversity and inclusiveness. When communities of color fight with one another, the racists win. Your reaction? Uh, no, I, th- I think that that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, I, I really do think that this kind of divide and conquer strategy from those that want to foment racism in our, our country. Um, they know that we're stronger and formidable if we unify our voices and we talk in that way. Uh, and, 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 and look, it's also just, you know, to the point we talked about earlier, it's also just a very easy way for people that don't want to uh, confront the racism to just, again, change the subject and, and, and say, well, what about this or that? And again, it just, I've seen that kind of tactic used over and over again um, to just prevent uh, us from actually tackling the toughest of the questions and the deepest of the wounds and the ways in which we can actually think about healing um, by just trying to, again, just change the subject there. So I, I thought that what you read the passage there is very powerful. And, 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 and really, um, you know, I think hits at a lot of important issues right now. So, um, dear listener, if um, Andy Kim's name sounds familiar and you can't quite place it, it might be because you recognize his name because of a, a photo that went viral um, that was taken on January 7th. 
And it was Congressman Kim in the Capitol with a garbage bag cleaning up debris from inside the Capitol. Was that under the rotunda? In the rotunda? The, the photos, I think, were in the rotunda. I cleaned it all around the Capitol. The rotunda and then the the, the crypt below the, mm-hmm. the rotunda is, um, I think, where the photos were, were taken. And it it sort of captured the the imagination because it was something that you 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 didn't do it for the pictures you did it on your own and I guess the photographer just happened to be happened to cap, capture this image but it said so much about um, what January sixth meant to the people folks like you who work there that's your place of business. Um, your colleagues are there, your staff's there, friends, friends are there, but you're also, as you, you've mentioned several times, I mean, you, you've been to Afghanistan and Iraq, um, you, you know, working for the Pentagon, you've been a diplomat. What did it mean to you? Why did you feel so compelled to do something that even looking at the picture just screamed selflessness? I, I it was very instinctual. It was probably sometime around 11 p.m. or, or midnight on the night of the insurrection exactly. that I started to clean up. Um, and you know, when I look back on it, you know, I, I think it was because of my parents. You know, my my parents were immigrants to this country. My mom was the one. They they took me to the Capitol for the first time when I was a kid. They taught me to love that building. I remember my mom bringing me into the rotunda for the first time and for me just feeling the majesty of that room as a, as a, a little as a little boy I revere that building. I think it's the most beautiful building in the country. And I remember when I was cleaning up, I actually stumbled across this plaque on the wall down a hallway that not many people go down that says below this plaque lays the the cornerstone laid by first president George Washington. And I was well, standing in front of there with a you know garbage bag in hand, you know, full of, of debris and 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 ref, wreckage from the insurrection, and just thinking like, wow, like you know, this building's bigger than all of us, and you know, we are but mere caretakers, you know, in this t- moment in time, and it made me realize that you know the rotunda that this was probably the worst shape that the rotunda had been in in potentially hundreds of years. Uh, treated with that kind of disrespect. And I just felt like I needed to do something. I didn't really think about it. I just saw a, a roll of, of trash bags and just started cleaning up. Um, so it was, you know, I have to say, we, we I got thousands of, of letters from people all over the country in the, in the days and weeks after. And I, I think I didn't expect it to be photographed. I didn't expect it to have that kind of reaction, but I, I think it just struck a nerve with people because uh, that tr- that that respect was so lacking on that day. And I think um, you know, hopefully, people saw uh, some humility in in what I did, uh, and it shows. You know, one of the letters it ended by saying, "Character matters," and I think you know people want to see that in their leaders right now and understand that that's what public service is about. You know, throughout this conversation, as we were talking about um, Atlanta and your experiences growing up dealing with with racism, um, and especially when talking um, 
I noticed both times when you talked about your your parents, but then when you talked about your five year old, um, your eyes welled up. Um, I could fee I could I could see it, but I can also I could also feel the the pain, especially when you were talking about your five year old. Um, because one, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine how that makes you makes you feel as a parent. But I was transported back to when I was a little kid dealing with the racism I had to deal with, you know, being the only black kid in a, in a predominantly white school and coming to terms slowly um, with the fact that, um, you know, you love your country, but your countrymen and, and women don't exactly love you back. And I, I, I wonder, Congressman Kim, um, how do you feel personally about what's going on and how has that either shattered or altered your vision of your country and your, and your place in it? I have to say that, um, you know, as I relate to you, some of the different stories of the course of the years of the, some of the experiences I had at the State Department and, and elsewhere. And, you know, when I was running for Congress the first time around, there was this ad on TV, this attack ad against me that ended with this line, uh, Andy Kim, he's not one of us. Um, and I, I, I think about that line a lot because it, that wasn't the first time that I heard that line used against me. Um, so, you know, it, it, it hurts. But what I'll say is that my experience of the last two months, both from the aftermath of the insurrection, as well as the last um, couple of days after the mass murder in Atlanta, for me, that has only strengthened my resolve. It has actually given me a more higher and heightened sense of, of patriotism in some ways that I actually haven't felt quite like this in, in, a, in a long time. It has made me want to fight harder for it because I see what's at stake. I see us on an unstable and unsustainable trajectory as a nation right now. The problems that we faced did, did not rest with just one person and, and it's not gonna get better just with somebody out of office and someone else in. I really felt like we are on a very long road to recovery ahead. And I have to do everything I humanly can to be able to fix that because I love this country, but also because if I don't, I'm there. I feel like I would therefore be saying that I'm giving up on trying to shape this world that my kids are going to grow up in. And I think that that's why, you know, you see me get emotional when I talk about my kids is that the work that I do in Congress, this isn't just about laws and that we're writing and words on a piece of page or speeches that I give. I see this as my way of being a dad and, and trying to shape the world that they grow up into whether that's about healthcare or climate change or about racism in our nation. So this is all deeply personal to me. 
And um, that is where I draw my strength from. That is where, where that is my North star. And I feel like I'm hitting up against places where I don't know if I can make the difference that I feel like is needed. And that is tough for me in the same way. It's tough for me to think about how I can talk to my kid about the experience that he had and what he will have that talk. I don't, know how to have that talk with this country. I don't know how to have that talk with, with my community about what we really need to do to get done. And I sense the magnitude of the challenges that we face, but I don't feel prepared yet with understanding the magnitude of the solutions needed to fix those problems. I have the energy, but I don't feel like I have the answers. I'm okay with that for a bit because, again, I try to practice the politics of humility that I don't have all the answers. And I think too often our politics gets bogged down in hubris where too many people think they absolutely have the right answers and that if you're not agreeing with them, then you're on the wrong side of history. I think we need to be careful about that. But that being said, you know, th this is a moment where I, I wish I knew what to say to my kids. I wish I knew what to say to you about how we heal. I wish I knew the right words to say to my district, but I fall short. And um, I, I'm, I'm still learning um, and I'm still listening to try to figure out, you know, how we move forward. Well, Congressman Kim, you have um, an entire country um, that is behind you um, and the Asian American community, our fellow Americans who are under threat and under assault. You are not alone. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for, for such a thoughtful exchange here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.